In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. This is my 200th podcast, and I, I look back to the date of the first one, and it was just over two years ago. It was September 2014 that I did the very first podcast. And if you remember, I began the podcast shortly after I ended the Peter Schiff radio show. But I hope everybody is enjoying uh, these podcasts. So if you like what you're listening to, help turn on other people to the same information. Well, statements early this morning by Richmond Fed President Jeffrey Lacker certainly sent tremors through the precious metals market. Gold tumbled over $40 an ounce, closing 1268 and change. This is the first time we've actually been below 1300 I think, in the last few months. Silver down just over a buck, 1778 It wasn't too long ago that we had just gotten back above 20 and now we're you know below the 18 handle. But it was even worse for gold and silver mining stocks, which were just pummeled. This is the worst day of the year for those stocks. I think the indexes were down about 10% on the day, with many stocks, individual stocks, down more than that. And the markets closed right near the lows of the day. So it was a big sell-off right after those statements came out, and it continued. And there was no reprieve for those stocks at all. The dollar was also stronger on the day, although not against the euro. There were some rumors that the European Central Bank may begin to taper its QE program. 
So that held the euro steady against the dollar. The weak currencies were the yen and the pound, which was pounded again to about a new 35-year low on concerns that we might have a hard Brexit rather than a soft Brexit. So this is, I think, more of yen and pound weakness today than dollar strength. The uh, bond market, though, was weaker on the day, closing near the lows. The Dow, though, only off about 85 points. I think the lowest I saw was down about 125. To me, if the markets really believe that a rate hike is coming, which clearly uh, is what they believe when it comes to the metals traders, I think the stock market should be even weaker. Although probably what's helping the stock market is the strength in the financials, because as I've said before, People actually believe that higher interest rates are good for the financials. And so the fear of higher rates actually lifted the financials, which kind of helped support the market. But, you know, people who think the Fed is going to raise rates and that higher rates are good for the financials, they're wrong twice, right? Because the Fed's probably not going to raise rates. And if they did, it would be horrible for financials, but it just shows you how wrong some people can be. But I guess the people who are buying the financials because they think their Fed's going to hike rates, they might get lucky because they'll be wrong on the rate hikes. And so they won't end up losing as much on their financials as they would have lost had the Fed actually raised rates. That's an example of being careful what you wish for. But I want to go over the statements that started all the turmoil. Lacker, what did this guy say? that caused everybody to jump to the conclusion that the Fed's about to hike rates. Now, the probability, though, of the rate hike had been rising. It didn't just start today, but the probability did notch up a bit today. But they're now looking at about a 60% chance of a December rate hike. But there's a 25% chance now of a November hike. Now, the November meeting is one week before the election. Now, why would people think the Fed would take a chance on an adverse market reaction to a rate hike a week before the election? I mean, they waited that long. Why not wait another meeting, right? Then they can let it go uh, beyond the election. It seems to me that if they were going to hike before the election, they would have done it in September because that would have given the market some time to recover in case it, it sold off, right? They could have done some damage control. So it doesn't seem that they would raise in in November. Yet the markets are pegging a 25% probability that that's going to happen and a 60% probability, which is better than a coin toss, that the Fed's going to move in December. Now, personally, I would say that if you do believe the Fed's going to hike, that December seems that it's more likely, which obviously the markets are pricing in a higher probability in, in December. And I'm sure that when they don't hike in November, that maybe that possibility will even go up, although all of this can change. We get the non-farm payroll number on Friday. So if we have a bad number, you know, those rate hike probabilities go out the window. But, of course, the reality is the Fed ain't going to hike rates. I mean, we're all talking about a rate hike that isn't going to happen. And I still think the Fed knows that a rate hike is not going to happen, but they still have to talk about it for the reasons that I went over. They can't admit that they can't raise rates because that's even worse. So they have to keep up the pretense by continuing to talk as if a rate hike is possible. What's amazing is that the markets haven't gotten wise to this game. Now, all Lacker said this morning was that he thought that the Fed should be preemptive 
when it comes to inflation fighting, that the Fed should not wait for inflation to pick up, that it should act preemptively to kind of nip it in the bud before it has a chance to bloom. Right? And he thinks that will help prolong this expansion because if the Fed gets behind the curve and it waits too long and then it has to really jack up interest rates quickly, that it could derail the recovery. Now, this is ridiculous on so many fronts. I mean, first of all, the time to have been preemptive on inflation has long since passed. I mean, we're years too late to be preemptive. I mean, even using the government's own uh, inflation uh, metrics. The core CPI has been above 2% now for, what, like 10 consecutive months? So how is it preemptive if the core is already above your target and it's been above it for a, a long time? And also, one of the main reasons that the headline number has been restrained, even as the core has been moving up, is the weakness in oil prices. Well, that's turned around. I mean, oil is you know almost at $49 a barrel. In fact, it was above $49 a barrel for most of the morning. And even with the strong dollar and weak gold prices, uh, oil prices held up pretty well. So to me, it looks like oil prices have bottomed that are headed higher. So, I mean, the Fed has long since missed its window of being preemptive. But if they wanted to be preemptive, why didn't they move in September? I mean, why are they talking about moving now? And in fact, you've had other Fed governors come out and say the exact opposite of that, that the Fed should not be preemptive, that the risk is being too aggressive on inflation. See, the Fed keeps saying that we want to make sure that we don't have a recession because we don't have any ammunition to fight a recession if we get caught with one because rates are still so low. They're saying it's easy to fight inflation because we've got a lot of room to hike rates. I mean, we're really, really low and you fight inflation by raising rates. So we'd rather have inflation because that's what we can fight. What we don't want is recession because we can't fight that because we're out of bullets. That's what most of the people in the Fed have been saying. But of course, even that is ridiculous because even though they supposedly have a bunch of bullets to fight inflation, there's no way they can fire them without killing the bubble economy. That's what nobody seems to understand, that it's all bark and no bite when it comes to inflation fighting. Because yes, in theory, oh yeah, they could jack rates up to fight inflation. But in reality, they can't do it. Because now we have so much debt that if they try to fight inflation, we're going to have a worse financial crisis than 2008. The Fed doesn't want that. And so it can't fight inflation. But so it doesn't have to fight inflation. It pretends that it's ready to do it. So this is all talk. So whenever the Fed talks about being preemptive, this is all part of their, you know, their loud talk policy. They, they have no stick. So this is, this is all part of that, of that game. But the market still doesn't get it, that it doesn't matter what they say. And of course, Lacker didn't actually come out and say, we want to be preemptive, therefore we're going to raise in November, or therefore we're going to raise in December. He didn't commit the Fed to doing anything. He just said we should be preemptive. But I mean, who knows what that could mean? Maybe what he means is we should raise them sometime in 2017, as opposed to waiting to 2018 or 2019. There's nothing that he said that would suggest the rate hike is coming in November or December. Now, he did talk about the economy strengthening. He said he believed that the economy was strengthened in the second half and it would be led by the strong consumer. Now, that is already belied by the data. That's another irony here. Everybody is, you know, reacting to what this guy says and they're ignoring what's actually happening in the economy. In fact, just yesterday... The Atlanta Fed, again, 
in this uh, GDP limbo that they've been playing, they lowered their forecast for Q3 down to 2.2. Now, a month ago, it was 3.8. That's a big move down. And this whole time, Janet Yellen has been saying that she wants to see more data. Well, look what's happened to the data. The Fed didn't raise rates in September because they said they wanted to see more data because they weren't sure, right? They wanted to get some confirmation that the recovery was on track. Well, all the data shows that it's off track. Clearly, based on all the data that's come out since the Fed last chose not to raise rates, the data has been weak. Growth forecasts are coming down. The IMF coming late to the party, they substantially revised their uh, estimate for third quarter U.S. GDP growth. So all these estimates are coming down. So the data that the Fed claims to be dependent on has gotten worse. And so if the Fed didn't raise rates in September, and now the data is worse than they thought it was going to be, why would they raise rates if they were truly data dependent, unless you think the Fed was lying and they weren't data dependent. But if you realize that they were lying, then why should you believe anything these guys say? But again, all of this could be moot when we get the jobs numbers on Friday. And clearly, if the job numbers come out weak, then, you know, the Fed's going to have more cover to say, well, yeah, we were getting ready to raise rates, but, you know, now we got to wait and we got to wait and see because we got this weak number and so we need more data. But if you look at all the other data that's come out, they already have plenty of cover if they want to officially acknowledge that they're not going to raise rates, but they don't want to do that. They're still walking that fine line between pretending everything is great, but not raising rates and proving that it's not. You know, had the Fed actually raised rates as many times as it was telegraphing a year ago or two years ago, they would already be cutting them. We would already be in an official recession had they been more aggressive. Now, that doesn't mean they were right to go slow. We need that recession. That recession is part of the cure that the Fed doesn't want to allow to be administered because of politics, right? And Donald Trump talks about how the Fed is being political. That's true, but it's nothing new. I mean, the Fed has been political for a long time, and they always try to help the incumbent party because that's where they get appointed, right? Janet Yellen wants to be reappointed, and, and so to do that, she has to curry favor uh, with Hillary Clinton. But believe me, if Donald Trump wins this election, you know, she's going to be trying to help Trump. She's going to be, uh, you know, she's not going to raise rates like Trump seems to think as soon as Obama's uh, leaving because she's going to try to uh, prop up the, the administration, just like Ben Bernanke was trying to help out George Bush. But then as soon as Bush was out and Obama was in, well, now he's on that team, right? He's on whichever team is at bat. And that's really what's going on. But all this talk about rate hikes is just that. It's to maintain the pretense that the, the only time they actually hiked rates was December of last year. And what was that? I mean, they didn't even want to do it. It was almost like, you know, a pitcher throwing the ball to first base just to check the runner, to keep him from stealing, right? Just to let him think, look, look, I'm, I'm looking at you, right? So don't take too big a lead. Because I think the, the Fed wanted to throw that ball just to get the market stinking. You see, we can raise rates because, look, they've done it once. 
right? And that bought him a lot of time, I guess, because now a lot of people say, well, you see, Peter, you said the Fed couldn't raise rates. And look, see, they raised rates back in December as if somehow that that proves that I was wrong. In fact, it proves how right I was because that's all they did. They did one teeny bitty rate hike, the littlest they could do, and they haven't done it again. And they waited all the way until December to do it. They waited a whole year and then delivered the smallest rate hike they can possibly deliver. And then they've done nothing since. You know, this is another situation, too, where you have two camps where they're both basically wrong. You have the one camp that says we need to hurry up and raise rates so that we can fight the next recession. And then you have the other camp that says, oh, no, 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 we, we better not raise rates at all because we really have no ammunition to fight the next recession. So we better do nothing to accelerate its onset. So let's leave rates where they are because, you know, we basically are out of bullets, right? That, and I am more in line with the second camp because that is the reality. But where the second camp is wrong is that what the Fed was doing in the past to fight recessions didn't really fight them. I mean, the Fed has never solved the problems. It simply papers them over. That's all the Fed does. The Fed prevents the market from solving problems because recessions are not to be resisted. They're to be embraced. It's the, it's the artificial booms that are the problem. It's the recessions that are the solution to the problem. But the Fed doesn't want any real solutions for political reasons. So rather than fighting recessions, it papers them over. But the problem is, ever since 2008, the problems are now so big that they're impossible to paper over. I mean, no matter how much paper the Fed prints, you can't bury uh, these problems. And so now things are so bad that it doesn't matter. So none of this stuff that worked in the past, and I have work in quotes, is going to work now. I mean, the business cycle was a byproduct of the Fed's monkeying with money supply and interest rates. They created this cycle, but now... It can't work anymore because the whole time this cycle was moving, the problems were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, even if the recessions themselves were not necessarily getting deeper and deeper, although they kept changing the way they measured the GDP and inflation. So that kind of hid the severity of subsequent uh, downturns. But now the economy is so sick because of years and years of years of this toxic medicine that it doesn't even work superficially anymore. We can't even create the real illusion of recovery. All we can create is an asset bubble. And so people are distracted by high stock prices or real estate or bond prices, and they're ignoring what all the voters can plainly see, uh, which is why, again, you had the popularity of Sanders, is why Donald Trump became, uh, became the Republican nominee. So to me, that proves that I was right, yet somehow the fact that they raised rates is supposedly got everybody thinking, well, they did it once, they'll do it again. Well, because they did it once, they don't want to do it again because they saw how the markets reacted, and they don't want that to happen again, certainly before this next election. Now that I'm on the topic of elections, you know, tonight we are going to have the, the vice presidential debates, and uh, these things are probably going to be pretty boring We'll see. I don't know if there'll be a, you know, a Dan Quayle type moment. You know, I know Jack Kennedy and you're no Jack Kennedy. That's probably about the only thing memorable from a vice presidential debate. So I'll be watching just in case there's anything worth tweeting about. So if you're not following me on Twitter, maybe, you know, sign up in case I decide to chime in. Uh, but rather than talking about the VPs, I want to talk a little bit about the most recent controversy that shouldn't be a controversy regarding Donald Trump. And the revelation by the New York Times 
over the weekend that Donald Trump took a rather large, and that's pretty good mildly, loss on his tax returns back in, what, the early 1990s of almost a billion dollars, like 900 and some odd million dollar operating loss carry forward uh, from a year where he really got decimated in the big real estate decline of that recession. And, of course, a lot of that was probably on his casinos in New Jersey. And, yes, I mean, Trump lost a lot of money. I mean, I remember that one 60 Minutes interview he did where he was walking by with the reporter and he pointed to a homeless man and he said, you see that homeless man? He's worth $900 million more than I am because Trump was broke. I mean, technically, he hadn't filed personal bankruptcy. But if you looked at his personal assets and his personal liabilities, he had a negative net worth. So he really was in a big hole. And, you know, he spent the next uh, decade or two digging his way out of that hole. I mean, so he made billions, he lost billions, and he made billions back, right? It was, uh, well, it wasn't rags to riches. It was, you know, little riches to big riches, you know, to, you know, paper rags back to riches again. But, you know, he had his highs and his lows. But the big controversy here is that this tax loss meant that Donald Trump didn't have to pay any income taxes on the income that he earned in subsequent years, 18 to be exact. Since then, they've amended that, and you can now carry forward your losses for 20 years, your operating losses. But at the time Trump lost that money, the rule was 18 years. You can go backwards two years and claim refunds on taxes you've paid, or you can carry forward for 18. And the outrage is, oh, this is terrible because it maybe it means that over those 18 years, Donald Trump paid no income taxes. And if on average, I guess he earned less than about 50 million a year, which is probably still a pretty big number because he's a real estate guy and they have all kinds of depreciation that they get. So they get a lot of non-cash losses anyway in real estate to kind of shelter their income. But assuming that after all those deductions, he earned less than about 50 million a year over those 18 years. And yeah, he wouldn't have paid any income taxes. And this is supposedly some kind of an outrage. What's outrageous is the fact that so many people would be upset by this. But, you know, it also bothered me to see Rudy Giuliani on the news on one of these Sunday morning shows saying that, well, this just proves that Donald Trump is a genius. I mean, look, that's a ridiculous comment. And that's just fodder for Hillary Clinton, who is saying, well, if he's such a genius, why did he lose the billion dollars in the first place? Donald Trump may be smart. He's probably not a genius. But if he is, he's not a genius because he took advantage of a very obvious tax deduction that millions of other Americans who are not geniuses also use. I mean, he's not a genius, but he's not an idiot because you would have to be an idiot not to use the deduction. That is the point. Donald Trump simply did what any other taxpaying American would do. I mean, the whole this whole thing is absurd that somehow Donald Trump has a patriotic duty to pay more taxes than are legally owed. Nobody has that duty. In fact, why do you think people hire tax accountants? And some of them are very expensive because they want to pay as little tax as possible and they want to make sure that their accountant, you know, make sure that they take advantage of all the deductions that they may not know about because they they're not professional accountants and the rules are complicated and they change all the time. And so people hire accountants. And then accountants tell you, "Okay, here's your deductions." I mean, would any American think about this? So you have an accountant and your account says, okay, I just did your taxes. 
And you got various deductions that you could take advantage of. They're all they're all legal. We're not pushing the envelope here. It's just you know cookie cutter, you know plain vanilla stuff. And we could take we can utilize all these deductions. And you know you're you owe five thousand dollars in taxes, or we can ignore all the deductions and you could just pay a hundred thousand. Which which do you prefer? Do you want to pay a hundred thousand or do you want to pay five thousand? I mean, what idiot is going to say, nah, forget the deductions. I'll just write a hundred thousand dollar check. I mean, even Warren Buffett won't do that for all his complaining about how he wants to pay more taxes. Believe me, Warren Buffett takes every deduction that the law allows. He doesn't pay more than he owes, and neither did Donald Trump, and neither did anybody else. So to make a big deal about the fact that he didn't pay taxes on the money that he earned after he lost it is ridiculous. Now, first of all, let's think about this whole idea about a business operating loss carry forward because now you have people attacking this as if it's some kind of loophole that needs to be closed now i know trump is in real estate and sometimes in real estate i don't know did he actually lose a billion dollars or was some of this some kind of depreciation i'm not really sure but let's for the sake of argument say he lost an actual billion dollars in one year let's say he lost that billion dollars why should he have to pay taxes earning back the billion that he lost, right? I mean, because if he earned a billion dollars, he paid taxes on the money when he earned it. In fact, to have a billion dollars after taxes, you probably have to earn $2 billion, right? So you earn $2 billion, you pay a billion in tax, and now you have a billion left over. Now, if you lose that billion, why should you be taxed earning it back? That's the whole idea. I mean, a year is kind of an arbitrary time frame anyway, right? I mean, because the tax code is taxing your income in that year. But, I mean, what's so special about a year? I mean, because, you know, you can have some years where you make money, and you can have some years where you lose money. The whole idea of the tax code is they want to smooth out, you know, the cyclicality of somebody's business. Because, you know, if you're a salary guy and you're working for wages, sure, you know, year in, year out, you're earning about the same amount of money. But there are some businesses where you can have good years and bad years. Let me give you an extreme example, right? This is, you know, this is obviously not the way it works, but, you know, just to, to, to illustrate it. Let's say I operate a, a, a ski, ski resort, a lodge at a ski resort. And let's say when there's a lot of snow, I make a million dollars during that year. And let's say when there's no snow and it's really a bad season, I lose a half a million because I got a lot of fixed overhead and I got salaries. I got to pay people. I can't, you know, and if I have nobody on my skiing on my mountain, I, you know, I still have to pay them. But let's, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument that that's how it goes. And let's say that it varies every other year. So I make a million dollars one year, then I lose 500,000. Then I make a million dollars, then I lose 500. That, that's my business. Every year it's exactly the same. Well, what's my average? Well, my average income is $250,000. That's what I earn on average. Every other year, I lose a half a million, and every other year, I make a million. So it averages out to two hundred fifty thousand a year. Okay, it's a living. Let's say that's your business, and you know you're fine. And then you'd have to pay taxes as if you earn two hundred fifty thousand a year. But if you couldn't, you know, have carry forward or you know carry back, it wouldn't work because you'd you'd make a million dollars in the years that you made money. And then you'd pay, let's say, five hundred thousand in taxes, and now you'd have five hundred thousand. And then you'd lose five hundred thousand. The other years, you'd never make any money because after paying taxes, you would basically just make back what you lost in the years you lost money, and so there'd be no income from the lodge, and so you'd have to go out of business. You cannot survive given a tax code that doesn't let you 
carry forward your losses or, or go backwards. Because as long as you can go backwards, all right, so the year I, I lose 500000 I can take that $500,000 loss and reduce my million-dollar income down to 500000 and then pay the taxes on the 500000 because that's 250000 a year. But if I can't do that, if I have to pay taxes when I make money, but then I can't move the losses from the years I lose money, it's heads the IRS wins, tails I lose. I mean, you can't have a tax code like that. So if you're operating a business, you have to be able to apply losses in one year to profits in another year. I mean, this is not a a weird loophole. This is supposed, this has to be there. I mean, if this wasn't there, it would make it that much more difficult for small entrepreneurs to stay in business. I mean, how could you could survive? If every time you had a gain, you had to pay a huge tax, and then they just forgot about the losses, right? I mean, it, 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 it can't work that way. But nobody wants to come out and defend this. They all want to pretend that this is some kind of little loophole uh, that he that he found. And then somebody like uh, Giuliani wants to say he's a genius for finding this thing. Like this is some little unknown thing that, you know, you have to be some kind of genius to figure out any, you know, you know your TurboTax program is going to know this, right? I mean, you don't, you, it's not even like you need a sophisticated accountant. This is basic stuff. Everybody knows this. But they want to blow it out of proportion as if this is some big gotcha thing. Aha! This is what Donald Trump was hiding. The fact that he didn't have to pay any income taxes. Well, if he's just making back the money he lost, it's not income. You know, it's like, you know, these hedge funds, you, know, you have a high watermark, right? They get 2 and 20. You know, they make you some money, they take 20%. But then if they lose you money, they have to make it back before they can get, you know, another 20%. They have their high watermark. Well, that's the same thing with the IRS. You're running a business... And then if you lose money one year, you get to make it back. You have to get back above water before they start taxing you. How can they tax you while you're still trying to dig yourself out of a hole? Because if that's the case, you're never going to get out of that hole. So this whole outrage is sheer nonsense. It's, it's envy. It's class warfare. But again, Donald Trump and his advisors are dropping the ball on the way they need to uh, come out here. And, defend, and Donald Trump doesn't have to talk about how smart he is for doing this because that makes him look foolish. Just say, look, I'm not an idiot. I'm not a moron. I just do what everybody does. Yeah, I had a horrible year uh, in the late 90s or eight, late 80s, whenever it was, early 1990s. I lost a bunch of money. Yeah, I did. And then I made it back. And you don't have to pay income taxes making back the money that you lost because you already paid taxes on it when you made it the first time. Why should you have to pay taxes on it again? And, of course, you know, there's still the estate tax out there. So what, he's got to pay taxes on it a third time? Well, we'll see how Mike Pence handles this topic tonight because I'm sure the subject of Donald Trump's taxes is going to come up. And, you know, so hopefully they have a better way to respond to it than they've responded to it thus far. But, again, Donald Trump doesn't need to run away from this. He needs to embrace it. And again, he needs to show how little Hillary Clinton understands about running a business and how Hillary Clinton wants to stack the deck even more against entrepreneurs by making it impossible for them to operate cyclical businesses by telling them that it's heads they lose, tails the government wins. He needs to explain why the tax code is written the way it's written and why it wasn't unfair that he not pay taxes 
earning back the money that he lost. He paid plenty of taxes when he earned it the first time. He doesn't have to pay taxes earning the same money back. Meantime, this is only income taxes. Donald Trump has paid a lot of property taxes. He owns a lot of property. He paid a lot of property taxes. Now, of course, yes, he passes it on to his tenants, but it's still taxes that he pays. He's paid enormous payroll taxes. You know, he has a lot of employees, so he's paid taxes on them. Yes, sure, you know, that you can argue is deducted from their wages, but had he not created those jobs, there would be no paychecks. And in fact, not only did he pay the payroll tax, but think about all the income taxes that his employees paid based on incomes that they wouldn't have had had Trump not employed them. Now, you know, maybe they would have been employed someplace else. Maybe they wouldn't have made as much money. But Trump is certainly responsible for a lot of taxes being paid by a lot of people. And, of course, he paid a lot of sales taxes and all sorts of taxes. I mean, I'm sure he paid far more taxes than the typical Hillary Clinton voter paid. I mean, obviously, Hillary's got a lot of billionaires voting for her, too. But your typical voter that is upset that Trump didn't pay enough taxes, Trump obviously paid a lot more taxes than that person did. And obviously, again, how much tax did Trump pay earning the billion dollars before he lost it? He paid a lot of taxes, and we can't keep taxing the same money over and over again. So hopefully uh, Pence will make that point, or Trump, or Giuliani, or somebody will come out there and handle this issue the right way so he doesn't blow the election the way Mitt Romney blew it. Because Mitt Romney made a lot of the same mistakes that Trump is making, and Trump wasn't making those mistakes so much in the primary. He did a better job in the primary than he's doing in the general election about standing up for business and standing up for the market. Another spin that I don't like that Trump is putting on this whole tax issue is he saying that, well, if Hillary Clinton really feels that I'm abusing the tax laws and taking advantage of loopholes, why didn't she do something to change it? See, he's saying, see, I know the tax code and I know how to game the system better than anybody. And so I'm the one to fix it. Elect me and I'll make sure to close these loopholes so that other Donald Trumps won't be able to game the system and take advantage of these loopholes like I was. I don't like that. I don't like this. Look, I, I'm a criminal. So, you know, make me sheriff because, you know, I know how criminals think. And I'll be able to catch more criminals because I have all this experience committing crime. I mean, that's in a way kind of how it sounds. I don't like that. Defend the tax deduction. It is legitimate. If you lose money, you get to recover your losses before you have to start paying taxes all over again. Stress the fact that it's difficult for entrepreneurs and small businessmen. And the tax code has to at least acknowledge that. Look, there are some legitimate uh, you know, loopholes in there that maybe can be closed, but the idea that losses can be carried forward or applied backwards to offset taxes that have already been paid, that is an important part of the tax code that needs to be there. And again, instead of running away from it, he should own it and turn the tables right back on Hillary. And so he needs to adjust that rhetoric quickly because time is going to run out if he doesn't get control of this issue and take it back and turn the tables on on Hillary Clinton. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. 
Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.